meeting, we um, hung out mostly um, in this small group uh, in Shawnee, Kansas. Uh, we met almost every night uh, and never really knew what was going to happen. Sometimes it was a Bible study, sometimes a prayer meeting, sometimes a testimony time where people would tell their stories. Um, and sometimes we would just watch John Wayne movies. I mean, it was, it was never really a plan. It was, it was kind of free flow, whatever people needed that night. Um, and I actually lived in Topeka going to Washburn um, at the time. And so I would drive back and forth um, after, my, after my last class. I would drive to Shawnee, and uh, we would hang out um, all evening. And then I would go home usually late at night uh, so I could get up for class the next morning. And most of these drives were with my roommate at the time named Chad, who was also part of this small group. And this, this poor guy had to suffer the consequences of my lack of authenticity. Here's what I mean by that. I've, I've always been a fairly gassy person. And um, my parents were convinced that my combination of how much I talk and my never-ending gas that I am actually literally full of hot air. Um, but when I, uh, when I was dating Esther, I obviously hit this little defect, which means that after five or six hours of hanging out together, I would basically pass gas from Shawnee to, to Topeka nonstop. And my, my roommate <laughs> was, like, begging me literally to tell Esther the truth about myself before he died of asphyxiation or got brain damage. Um, instead, I, I hid my problem until about two weeks before our wedding. Um, and believe it or not, a couple days before this, I had told Esther basically every evil thing that I had ever done, um, at least that I could remember. We had been dating during this kind of amazing, like, spiritual movement where God was moving like crazy, and I was all caught up in God and what God was doing and growing spiritually by leaps and bounds. But honestly, I had kind of rededicated my life to God like two weeks before I met Esther. Like, I've been a Christian for like ten minutes, really. And uh, and um, I was afraid she was going to think I was this like strongly devoted spiritual superstar when she married me. And that simply was not the case. Um, and I didn't think it was fair for her to marry me without all the info. And so one night, I very seriously sat her down tell her um, who she was really marrying. And honestly, I expected her to break off the engagement. Like, I was like, she has no idea who I really am. Um, I was sick with nerves over the whole thing. And I told her everything, every mean, selfish, evil, ornery thing I had ever done that I could remember. I just dumped it all on her. And to be honest, she was amazing. Um, she forgave me and acknowledged that we all have a past, that she knew she was marrying me and my past, and that she believed that God um, had plans for me and for together, and I simply cannot explain how huge of a relief it was coming out of that conversation. Except Esther started talking and forgiving me before I got to the part about having really bad gas. And, and I did, so I didn't tell her. It just never seemed to fit the conversation. Um, and so a couple days later, um, having told Esther that I no longer had any secrets, I felt it was unfair to keep this one. And it was weighing very heavy on my heart. Mention my colon. And so I sat Esther down and <laughs> informed her one day of my secret. And, uh, and she looked um, uh, a little nervous when I first sat her down. She was like, oh my gosh, after everything you dumped the other night, what are you going to tell me now? And, um, and uh, but she also, after being so sweet about the way she had accepted me, um, she also couldn't deny me. And so with a lot of stuttering and mumbling, I finally told Esther that I'm a very gassy person. I told her the way that I almost killed Chad, hot-boxing him 
all the way to Topeka every night. And once again, she was amazing. She informed me that her dad and sister were both very gassy and that she uh, was quite used to it. And, and she'd actually be surprised if I wasn't. And so uh, in a moment of complete transparency and vulnerability, I farted for like 60 seconds straight. And Esther just smiled, except her eye did twitch a little, like, with, with a little bit of fear. Um, <laughs> but she told me she loved me, and, she, and I couldn't be more relieved. I found a woman who knew all of my darkest secrets and still loved me and wanted to spend the rest of her life with me. Uh, and so I went to bed that night feeling like the luckiest man in the world. And I have to say, Esther put up a valiant effort, um, but still only made it about a week or maybe two, before every evening was punctuated by, God, can't you at least walk to the bathroom first? Or maybe, like, are you kidding me? Every five minutes? Like, every five minutes? Or can we go back to before the other night when you held it all night long? Anyway, that was uh, that was maybe the most vulnerable I've ever been. This is love week of our Advent cycle. Uh, and this story came back to me... Um, as I spent so much time meditating on the uncomfortable relationship between love and vulnerability. Um, I knew that I loved Esther and I would gladly spend the rest of my life with her um, within a few weeks of, of us starting to date, honestly. And, uh, and though it took her a little longer, um, she had reciprocated my love and agreed to marry me. Um, but it wasn't until I'd gotten vulnerable with both my past and maybe my most embarrassing trait that I really felt that Esther loved me back. Something about love and vulnerability um, are linked. They go together. Uh, we've been focusing this Advent season on the artistic passages of the lectionary. Um, every lectionary reading comes with an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading uh, from the letters, a New Testament reading from the Gospels, and an artistic reading, usually from the Psalms. Um, well, this year it's the, the latter that we've been um, occupying our time with. As we admire the, the Bible's ability to use images and metaphors um, and other kind of poetic language uh, to speak directly to our souls in ways that our minds don't always get. Um, our minds can be so consumed with facts that we almost forget that God made us fearfully and wonderfully with emotions and passions that don't generally respond to language the same way our minds do. Um, in week one, we read a poem of David where he let us see inside his head all the stress and chaos that lives there um, and then he shows us how he finds peace in the middle of that with the knowledge that God is good and he's in control. Um, in week two, we walked um, uh, through this uh, kind of poetic poem of Zechariah's um, where he had talked about uh, things that were deeply rooted in all the things that he had known for years and years and years. Like he was a priest, he, he knew all these things, and then he has this baby. And he's holding this newborn son. Something about the image of this baby kind of exploded all of this hope into his life um, that was tied to all the things he already knew, but it brought it to life in a way that he had never seen before. And then last week we read a song written by the prophet Isaiah um, and about uh, how the amount of joy that he experienced was directly related to how close, proximity close, he felt to God, even though he knew that an omnipresent God, a God couldn't actually get any physically closer. Um, joy is related uh, for Isaiah to closeness. And, uh, and he simply felt 
more joyful when his relationships were closer. Well, this week we're going back to the Psalms, um, but this time we're reading a small piece of a poem by a, um, a guy or a group of people named Asaph. Uh, and we're going to be reading the first seven verses of Psalms 80. Um, if you want to follow in your Bible, we're in Psalms 80. If not, the words will be on the screen behind you. If you're in the OFAM, they'll be right in the middle of your screen. Um, an Asaph psalm. Listen, shepherd, Israel's shepherd. Get all your Joseph sheep together. Throw beams of light from your dazzling throne so Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh can see where they're going. Get out of bed. You've slept long enough. Come on the run before it's too late. God, come back. Smile your blessing smile. That will be our salvation. God, God of angel armies, how long will you smolder like a sleeping volcano while your people call for fire and brimstone? You put us on a diet of tears, bucket after bucket of salty tears to drink. You make us look ridiculous to our friends. Our enemies poke fun day after day. God of angel armies, come back. Smile your blessing smile. That will be our salvation. This is the word of the Lord. So before we start, we need to discuss kind of the authorship um, of this psalm just a little bit. We'll do a little bit of nerd work. Um, scholars uh, differ a little in their opinions of who wrote the Asaph psalms. There's 12 of them. Um, there's a couple of Asaphs in the biblical narrative, uh, but the time periods when they live don't really match the content in these psalms, um, in, the, in the psalms of Asaph. But we do know that the descendants of Asaph um, became a musical field in the temple. Um, they were basically a band, and they wrote, they wrote worship music um, for the temple. Um, so one of the most predominant opinions is that the psalms of Asaph, all 12 of them, um, were not really accredited to a person, but rather to this band, the children of Asaph, the, the people who followed Asaph. So they bear the name of Asaph, who lived um, way before any of the content mentioned in these psalms actually happened. Um, uh, and so they were probably penned by his followers. Um, and honestly, this is uh, an opinion that I hold, um, simply because these psalms seem to me to be more helpful if I allow them to be dated after the tragedies that they um, one of the one of the themes is that Asaph wrote him prophetically about things that were going to happen in the future. Um, that would be cool, but I actually find it more helpful to imagine them coming from someone who suffered this tragedy and is pouring out their heart to God in this beautiful art, in this beautiful poetry, um, to process what they're going through. Um, not because I like watching people hurt, obviously, but rather because I believe that pain is inevitable, um, and these uh, are the very psalms that we often right there in the midst of, of the hurt. And today's psalm is one of those poems, um, except this is Love Week, um, which makes it a little bit weird. We generally come to this week expecting, for God's love the world, he gave his only begotten son, right? That's what we expect on Love Week, like the sweet stuff, the sappy stuff. Um, we don't come to Love Week for, you put us on a diet of tears, bucket after bucket of salty tears to drink. Like that, I actually went back to the lectionary to make sure I had the right verse. I was like, I read something wrong, because this is not a love um, so if you look at this passage from the vantage point of love, it became tricky at first. Um, and as I dove into the commentaries um, on this psalm, I found that most scholars consider um, it to be a, a, a continuation of the psalm before, that they were either one psalm that was broken onto two scrolls, or possibly like a sequel, like a part two, you know, kind of like Taylor Swift re-released, you know, the, the song where she passed teenage girls in their house. Um, I do. Uh, yeah, so it's like a it's like a sequel, a re-release kind 
kinds of things. So this may have been a sequel to Psalm 79, or it may have actually been a continuation. But they follow all the same themes. Uh, it definitely seems to be that both Psalms were written in the aftermath of Babylon conquering Jerusalem and kind of ransacking it and taking away all of its riches um, and taking the inhabitants captive back to Babylon. Um, so listen to how Psalm 79 begins. God, our barbarians have broken into your home, violated your holy temple, and left Jerusalem a pile of rubble. That's how the song starts. Um, so this is obviously a country song, um, and uh, and best to be consumed with, with uh, a beer, I guess. Um, so these songs were written pretty late in, in the Jewish narrative, most likely after the Babylonian victory over Israel. Um, which means that these were written in arguably one of the darkest times in Jewish history. Um, up until this point, the Jews had three things that really established them as the people of God. They had the Torah, the Promised Land, and the Temple. And it was those three things that really made them God's people. And all three of these were given by God as part of what was supposed to be this unbreakable covenant between God and His people. And so... Um, when you are a people um, and you identify yourself as the people of God and that identity is based on three things, two of which have now been taken away from you, um, it can be a little tough to figure out who you are. And honestly, um, if maybe you haven't gotten this whole thing wrong, when you no longer have a land and you no longer have a temple, um, it can be a little bit tough to know who you are of God. So the Jews were asking themselves some uh, of the most difficult questions people can ask. Uh, incidentally, it was during the time that the rabbis first began to compile the scriptures. Up until then, it was just a, a whole bunch of kind of loose scrolls. This is the first time they felt the need to really take the Torah seriously because it was all they had left. They had lost temple, they had lost promised land. All they had left was Torah. Um, they, and, and so they, they were also trying to study to see if maybe they had missed something. This wasn't supposed to be in the script. This was not what they had planned. This was not the way it was supposed to work out. And so they, they dive back into the scrolls to figure out, did we miss something? What did we miss? Um, didn't God promise us this land and this temple? Uh, what did we get wrong? Um, and so we, we uh, uh, and so they go back to, to look in this super, super dark and confusing time for the Jewish people. Um, most people... Um, would have assumed the Holocaust was like the darkest time in Jewish history. But I believe, um, and I don't want to in any way downplay the horror of the Holocaust, but I think it was the adjustments and lessons that these rabbis learned and the way that they drew to the Torah and to the, to the scriptures that helped um, the Jews that did survive the Holocaust make it. Um, so I think it was this time when they had almost nothing to hold on to um, that really gave the Jewish people uh, their deep roots. Um, so we're looking back to kind of, while they were looking back, to figure out what on earth had happened to the promises of God when the Babylonians came knocking. The rabbis found these prophets who had been warning of this very thing for a long time. Most of the prophets, when they were speaking, didn't get listened to. Most of them were, you know, they were talking, everybody was like, yeah, but you always say these stuff. Like, they were just kind of brushing them off. Like when you read the Chronicles of the Kings, you find the prophets did not have much of an audience. Nobody really liked them. So it wasn't until they'd been taken captivity that they go back to read these guys' writings, and they're like, holy cow, they were saying this was going to happen all along. We should have listened. Um, but what made it more powerful is they also found these promises 
this said, but one day you will return to your land and you will return to your temple and you will worship your God again. And so the fact that they called the first one right made the second one really, really powerful and really, really needed, which is one of the reasons they, they brought the scripture back and put it right in the middle because it held all of these promises that they felt like they were going to need for tomorrow. So they wanted to preserve, even though those same scriptures told them everything they had done wrong and really kind of made them look bad, they were like, it's still important because it also holds the promises for tomorrow that this is not the end. This hope uncovered by these captivity rabbis, um, I think, is what sustained the Jew, Jewish people in the Holocaust. Uh, but this morning's psalm was penned before that kind of uncovered hope. It was penned when it was still super dark, before they had really found hope for the future and that God was going to uh, restore them. This psalm was written when all was dark, when there was no confidence that God would save them. It was written when, honestly, there was very little evidence that God was for them. Um, the Jewish people were rethinking everything. And how could they have gone so wrong? They were actually, you can see the darkness um, in the way that this psalm opens. Um, listen, shepherd, son of Israel, get all your Joseph sheep together. Throw beams of light from your dazzling throne so Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh can see where they're going. I think this is possibly one of the most difficult parts of suffering. Um, not knowing where you're going. The unknown. Honestly, a lot of times the suffering itself is manageable. It's the giant question mark that lives in your future. Usually right here is the prayer that comes from your guts. Like, God, shine a little bit of light so I can see where I'm going. What's tomorrow going to look like? Is there going to be a tomorrow? That big question mark that hangs when we cry out for light, I think is the prayer that comes from just that visceral center of us. We might say fancy words, God, I trust you. Your will be done. We might say that with our mouths and with our mind, but our guts are praying something different. They're praying, God, shine just a little bit of light so I can see where I'm going. This is why poetic language is often the thing that works for moments like this. If we try to explain this feeling to anyone who's living in a logical, rational life at the moment, we would say, I have no idea what tomorrow's going to bring. And they'll go, well, why? Nobody knows what tomorrow's going to bring. And you're like, yeah, but I may not even have it tomorrow. And you're like, well, yeah, I could be a by car on the way home and not have it tomorrow. And we all live in that, in that place. Yeah, but I literally have to trust God for like every minute of my life. We're like, well, shouldn't we all trust God for everything? And you're like, somehow you're not getting it. Yes, I get it with my head. Everything you're saying is 100% true, which is why we don't, that, that words don't always speak the language of the soul. Because rationale says, yeah, we all live in the same place. None of us know what tomorrow's going to bring. We could all die, blah, 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 blah. But it's times like this when logic in the world doesn't explain the darkness we're feeling, what it feels like to be experiencing know that the future is unknown. We all know that with our heads. But sometimes that unknown gets into our soul. And we start crying out for light, which I think is what this psalmist is doing. But that's not the only thing that the songwriter asked for. Um, and this is where I think it gets good. In this verse, he says this, God, come back. Smile your blessing smile. That will be our salvation. And he repeats it again in verse 7. God, angel armies, come back. Smile your blessing smile. That will be our salvation. We 
Justice talked last week about how powerful the face is in the Scriptures and how often um, our emotional connection to God is expressed in the context of His face. Whenever it's like, you will feel joy in my face. Like, he, he, he attaches His face when He's talking about our emotions. Um, God has expressed his, his emotional love for us is expressed in the context of His face. Over and over again, the Bible talks about how we find joy in the in the face. And sometimes the translators misinterpret this and they say in His presence. It's kind of generic word that they find joy in His presence. But the Hebrew word is the word for face. We find joy in His face. When He looks at us, we see love in His face. We find joy in the face of God. You're all just, just in the past couple of decades, we talked about this last week, figured out that the human brain experiences the emotion of joy, the little part of our brain that lights up when we feel joy, when we see joy in the face of another. This is why smiles are contagious. When someone walks up to you smiling, it's hard not to smile back. Like it's our face, our brain has mirror neurons, and, and we see their joy, and we reflect it in joy, and we even feel a little bit of joy. Like this person's smiling at me, they like me, and it feels good. You know, when someone walks up and they're kind of mean mugging you, you're like, ooh, it's like sets off all the warning bells, you know. We're like, what did I do? You know, you know you didn't do anything, but you're still like, ooh, why are they mad? Like, we reflect the emotion we see in people's face. So we feel joy when we see joy. And the Bible's been saying that forever, for over 3,000 years, that God talks about the joy in His face, and that that's when we'll know joy. Neurologists are starting to catch up. About the last two decades, they figured that out as well. So here uh, is the psalmist again begging to see the face of God. Only this time, um, he says more about it. God of angel armies, come back. Smile your blessing smile. That will be our salvation. Your smile will be our salvation. And this is where things got emotional this week. See, this is not accurate, logically. Uh, This is not a rational statement. God smiling on you is not going to save you. Just a smile doesn't save you. And the, the tone of the verse makes it almost sound like the author is asking for no more than a smile from God. Not a miracle, not to go back in time before Babylon sacked the place, not a supernatural healing, just a smile. If you would just smile, I would feel safe. And this is when this week had a huge impact on my understanding of this passage and when I realized that this is a love song. My friend Roger Kelly died this week. I spent quite a bit of time the week before last with Roger, and he was at peace, trusting God for the timing of his life and death. And then this last week, I spent quite a bit of time with Sheila at Roger's bedside, watching the last few ounces of Roger's considerable strength drain out of his body, and it, it took just long enough that everyone involved was ready to see him no longer suffer. The timing was perfect. So Roger was ready to go, and his family was ready to go. By the time Roger passed, uh, they were ready as well. On top of that, everyone who knew Roger had no doubt that Roger is in heaven with Jesus, feeling that we're the unlucky ones. Roger is looking down, feeling like we're the unlucky ones. So no one would ever dream of asking Roger to come back. Like, for real. Roger's the, the, the lucky one. 
yes. I know Sheila would do anything to see Roger smile one more time. I know Nicole and anyone in the Mason family are secure in the knowledge that Josiah is loving eternal life, free of depression. He would never actually wish him to return from paradise. I know with all my heart they'd kill for one more of his big goofy smiles. I lost the three people I was closest to in the whole world other than my wife in the same car accident 18 years ago. I've learned to do life without them, and I honestly no longer imagine them living in this world. The world has changed a lot in 18 years, and I can't even dream of how they would fit into it. Um, the world's gotten crazy. I don't really want them back in any real way. They are blessed. But I'd do anything to see their smiles again. dream about seeing them smile at me. There's nothing else in the dream that fits my head. I didn't grasp the depth of the darkness that this psalmist was writing about until I heard him crying out for a smile from God's face. I could just feel I say all the time that Romans 5.1 is one of the first verses that I ever memorized. And it's a foundational verse in my life. It reads like this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse absolutely rocked my world. I think because when I was first taught this verse and when I first chose to believe it, um, I'd never felt at peace with God. I felt like God was a judge. Um, I felt like he was a father with very high expectations and even higher standards. Um, sometimes I felt like he was a coach, always pushing me and driving me and, uh, to do better. I even felt like he was a bully at times, if I'm honest. But I never felt at peace. I never felt like me and God were good. Um, and so when I was first taught this verse, it was this like gigantic it was like this gigantic stress and struggle that I'd always lived with between me and God just melted away um, when I chose to believe that God truly loved me, that I was at peace with Him. That it wasn't love me like I love my kids, where, yeah, I love them, but sometimes I don't want to be around them kind of love, like that. that you know, it was that, no, we're good, we're at peace together. I'd never experienced that until I fell into this verse. The crazy part that I've always tried to teach this verse to other people like it's that big. Like, be at peace with God. And they're like, cool story, bro. And I'm like, you don't see me. Why is this not as big for you as it is for me? They're like, so what's next? I'm like, oh. I've always been shocked to learn that this concept doesn't rock people's world the way that it does mine. 
But I think whoever wrote this Asaph, Asaph psalm would have gotten it. I can hear it in the tones of what he says. Just smile at us and you'll be like salvation. All I want is a smile to know that we're at peace. I want to feel like there's tension between us. I just want to feel like you're smiling at me. To know that you love us. Last week I showed the still face experiment. If you weren't here for that, search still face experiment on YouTube and, and watch it. You can go ahead and do it right now. No, I'm kidding. The baby, when robbed of the, the joy and love of its mother's face, completely melts down. That's, that's all that happens. The mom's playing and smiling with the baby, and the mom just, when the, when the psychologist tells her to, she looks away, she looks back still face. No emotion. This baby is within two minutes falling apart and crying a mess because it, it just loses that connection and it's not hurt. Nothing's been taken away. It's not hurting or hungry or being punished in any way. It just it loses connection and it creates a painful experience for the baby. That's what the psalmist is feeling. God, I don't have your smile. I don't have your face. See, that makes it dark. This begs the question, what does all this darkness and loss have to do with Love Week? I mean, this is Advent. We've lit the love candle. It's supposed to be focused on love from now till Christmas. And that's normally supposed to be warm and fuzzy and wild lament songs written in darkness. Well, I think the Christmas story illustrates this connection better than anything. Because the God of the universe loves the world, you and me, so much that he gave his son as a defenseless, vulnerable baby. Do you any idea how many things can go wrong with a baby? It's, it's nuts. So the all-powerful, glorious God of all creation willing to be reduced to a helpless, vulnerable all the terrible things that could happen. Incapable of eating on his own, needing to be changed and cleaned, having to be held and comforted. The creator of speech having to be learned, having to be taught to speak. Jesus didn't didn't just show up in his glory and power like God. He showed up in love, which means he showed up completely vulnerable. Because love is always Earlier this week, before Roger passed, Sheila was talking to me about how hard this process is, and I told her that I, I believe it's supposed to be. If you love right, losing the object of your love should rip you in half. There should be no easy way to do it. If it doesn't, you have to wonder if you love fully. In fact, the pain is almost the best evidence that you did it right. Because in order to love right, you have to give your so much of yourself that you are completely and utterly vulnerable. To love well, you have to know that you're very possibly, not possibly, probably going to get really, really hurt here. I think C.S. Lewis said it best. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. 
you want to make sure of keeping it intact, your heart, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your own selfishness. Because in that casket, but in that casket, dark, safe, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be And listen, I don't care if Mr. Lewis makes it sound, you know, cool. When your heart is in the blender, a heart and a hard and an impenetrable heart sounds pretty good sometimes. You can you can make it like a, a cliche kind of country song type message, but a broken heart is hell. It is. It's the worst. In fact, when Butch, Nino, and Giuseppe died 18 years ago, I never doubted God at all. It, it never crossed my mind that God wasn't real. Even in the midst of, of all that darkness, um, I never doubted that God's existence and that he was uh, intimately involved in everything that was happening. That, that never crossed my mind. But I did doubt whether or not love was worth it. I felt that temptation to harden up and just go, I will never do this again. I will never love. C.S. Lewis's snarky little coffin for your heart wasn't such a bad idea in that moment. Maybe impenetrable was better than shattered. Except my life was a thousand times richer because of my love for these three men who were taken too early. And I would have known none of that soul into the often clumsy hands of another knowing that they're going to hurt us. Maybe even break us. Love is vulnerable. Incidentally, I, I chose this picture I chose this picture to kind of represent our love week before we even knew Roger had cancer. Because nothing ever spoke to me of love like 50 to 60 years of that Roger and Sheila were together for 56, 57 years. The psalmist is crying out like millions of other lovers who have lost loved ones for one more smile. And the whole request lies in a single Hebrew word that doesn't translate well to English. Chesed. Said is one of those words that is pretty flexible in its meaning. It's mostly translated kindness or mercy, but it's also translated steadfast love or goodness a lot of the time, or favor or even good deeds. There's another word for, for in the Hebrew for love, but it's generally object-based. It's, it's, in other words, it's the word you use when you're talking about loving something lovable. So it's, it's love based on the you might love a cheeseburger. Like that's it's object-based love. Chesed is love that speaks to the character of the lover, not the love. It's, it's one that speaks to the character of God. God loves this kind of 
matter if the object is lovable, because when you love, you make it lovable. In the New Testament, Paul picks up this Hebrew word, chesed, and he chooses the best Greek equivalent that a lot of us are used to, which is agape, which actually is rarely used in Greek. In most other ancient Greek writings, agape is almost never used. It's Paul was looking for a word that wraps up this concept of chesed, and he chose agape, and it actually is used in the Bible more than any other old Greek writings. Didn't have much context until the New Testament gave it context by tying it to chesed. Not to be lovable, but to be loved. So the psalmist, as he's feeling the pain and separation and all the natural consequences of this broken relationship, in his case, being captive in a foreign land, he falls back on the chesed of God. He cries out for God's smile, knowing that the of God don't deserve it, but also knowing that God's love is not dependent on what they deserve. It's dependent on His mercy and His long-suffering kindness. Because God has said, this is what makes the Christian life different. And Advent is so important. Because frankly, if all if this life is all there is, then however sarcastic C.S. Lewis was being, he's right. If all this life, if, if this is all we have, do not give your heart away. Lock it up. Keep it safe. Whatever happens, because it is not worth the heartbreak. But, because of the chesed, the loving kindness, the mercy, the steadfast love, the agape of God. Because Jesus came for us as a vulnerable baby and lived a vulnerable life and died a, died a terribly vulnerable death. And in so doing, destroyed both death and vulnerability when He rose from the dead. We can rest assured in our hearts that they are never fully broken. That even as they get wrung out, even as they get hurt, they're never fully broken. Or at least never so broken that they won't one day be healed when we get to see the smile of God and the smile of the loved ones that were so desperately anxious to see again. So how do we respond to this? Christians are people of pain. I hate saying that. I wish I could be a cheerleader and just stand up here and tell everyone how awesome the Christian life is and always going to go welcome to the right. Blessing, blessing, blessing. I wish I was that guy. This is the time. You know that. Anyway. But we are to be people who love. Which means we have to walk around with our guts out all the time. Because love is vulnerable. My son Elijah and I made friends with this grumpy old homeless guy named Ed. He's taken Ed sleeping bags and other gear out into the woods where he lived several times. We had him over for lunch with a bunch of other homeless friends we had, but Ed was afraid of crowds, so he'd walk in the house, go straight to my bedroom, sit in my chair, pick up my remote, and watch the cheese while I would go get Ed's food. Now, honestly, I love doing it. Ed died in the library. I 
loved that just long enough for it to rip our guts out for those days. But in that time, we also got to change his destiny. And when we met Ed, he was destined to die alone in the woods somewhere. And instead, he died surrounded by people who loved him and were missing him. And that was a dynamic change worth the pain of losing him. Because love changes so often we reduce Christianity to behavior modification, living the Christian life, living you know, the godly life. We focus on this list of do's and don'ts. But the majority of the New Testament writers focused on love. Love your neighbor, love your enemy, love your spouse. People have the tendency to feel like if you talk about love too much, it's because you don't take the scripture seriously and you don't want to focus on the truth and the important sound doctrine. In my opinion, rules are easy. Rules don't require you to give anything, really. Rules just take discipline. Anybody can learn discipline. If you want to be like really intense, really extreme, you want to be hardcore, you want to be a, like a deep believer, try love. Love is the only real deal, hardcore thing, because it is going to rip you to shreds. If you want to stay safe, stick with the rules. That's the easy way to live. The rules are, are mostly painless. In fact, if you want like behavior change, there's a lot of great systems. AA does pretty good. Weight Watchers is okay. They, they do pretty good. If you want to go extreme, the Marines, especially boot camps, will definitely change your behavior. There's a lot of behavior modification out there. There's great, you know, motivational guys on TikTok. You can just get on one of those motivational pages. It will change your behavior. But only Christianity tells you to, to willingly hand over your heart to be pummeled in the grinder called love. Love isn't for the soft Christians who don't care to take sound doctrine seriously. It's not a hippie thing. Love is for the nut jobs who want to go all in, knowing that a cross is in their Advent is when we focus on the four virtues simultaneously trying to grow them in our lives. Hope, peace, joy, love. While also recognizing how hard that is in our fallen world. Thereby growing our hunger for Jesus' return. The more we focus on these things, the more we realize how hard it is to find hope in this world, peace in this world, joy in this world, love in this world, which makes us desperately want Jesus to return. For me, nothing does that more than love. Because I cannot wait for the day when we can enjoy all the rich and soul-satisfying benefits of love without the accompanying cross. There will come that day when love doesn't also come with pain. Can you imagine if a life when love no longer hurts? Whatever else heaven has, that would be a heaven worth waiting for, which is what Advent is all about. So the way that I would love to respond to this message this morning is to first recognize and acknowledge that we cannot love without making ourselves incredibly vulnerable. And yet, we count it worth the risk. So this week, this final week of Advent, as we 
wait for the arrival of Jesus come breaking into our stories this Christmas. Find someone to gamble on. Be vulnerable. If it's, if it's someone who you already love deeply, maybe tell them something that they don't know about you. Take the gamble. Take the risk of loving them. You might get hurt. There's a good chance of it. You might really get hurt. It's better than guarding your heart until it hardens. For someone in your life that you don't know as well as you should, take a gamble and reach out and show some love. Give it a chance. Knowing this, this could hurt like crazy. But it's still worth it. By being, being vulnerable, taking that risk. It might hurt, but it might also be the most rewarding experience of your life. So right now, while your kids are out of school and you've got an extra minute, use it to take a chance. And know that it's a gamble. Like, no going in. This could, this could really hurt. But I'm going to try it. Because that's the way love works. It, it makes us vulnerable. But that's how we make a difference.